You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca. I'm your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Chinook Native American Indians are indigenous to the Pacific Northwest. Many tribes come from the area of the Lower Columbia River. Thus, they are also known as the Peoples of the Lower Columbia. The word Chinook probably came from the Indian word Tishnook, spelled T-S-I-N-U-K, meaning strong fighters. The Army named the Boeing CH-47 twin-engine tandem rotor heavy-lift air uh, helicopter, the Chinook, and indeed, a strong fighter it was in Vietnam. My guest today, Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Carr, piloted one of these incredible helicopters in Vietnam. Glenn, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, Pete, it's good to be with you. How are you? I'm still kicking after all these years, aren't we both? (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's start with the basics, Glenn. Where were you born and raised? Tell us a little bit about your childhood and your education. Okay, uh, I was born on a cold Christmas morning. 1934, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Uh, grew up there. My my grandfather was a uh, construction man. It started in about 1902. Built most of my hometown. I'm very proud of that. My father followed suit uh, through my upbringing in high school, up to through high school. I was exposed to the construction uh industry but uh, and I helped dad a lot with fin- I was finishing concrete at eight years old so uh, I get to college uh, went to Oklahoma a and m started out a and m that was uh, 53 graduated from Shawnee high school 53 went straight on to Stillwater Oklahoma to a and m and that being a land grant college I was forced into the first two years of ROTC which I very quickly began to like. I signed up for the Advanced ROTC program and went for the full four years. Uh, was graduated uh, a uh, distinguished military graduate, which tendered a regular Army commission. Uh, it took me five years to get through all that because of labs and the drill field and what have you. Uh, just didn't uh, couldn't fit into four years. So. Uh, during that time, I commanded the Persian Rifle Military Organization at, uh, at school, and uh, we fielded a rifle team that won the National Persian Rifle Championships. Wow. Uh, so I was, uh, I was well-suited, uh, seemed like, to a military career, and that regular Army Commission gave me a three-year tenure, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> uh, so I graduated. I graduated uh, uh, in '58, and by that time they changed the name of the school to Oklahoma State University. So I have a, a class ring of uh, Oklahoma A&M and a diploma of Oklahoma State on it. Uh, graduated one night, left uh, the next morning for Fort Knox, Kentucky, to start my uh, uh, Armor Officer Advanced Course. That was uh, throughout the summer, end of about October, I think, uh, from uh, Fort Knox and then advanced the base, of course. I went to jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia, did five parachute jumps, 
mostly out of C-119s and C-123. Now, those, I think, are all in the museum. I don't believe any other flight. Um, From there, I went to, uh, let's see, I jumped school. Then I went to uh, my first part of flight training at uh, Camp Gary, Texas. That's a little-known fact. Most uh, 95% of the Army now would not know where Camp Gary is. It's in San Marcos, Texas, an old Air Force base. And we went through a phase with the L-19. Uh, it is now designated the O-1. It's a Cessna aircraft, single engines, uh, fixed-wing aircraft. I finished a phase there in about nine months. Then we moved to Fort Rucker. Uh, Alabama. That's down by Dothan, Alabama, in the southeast uh, corner of Alabama. And we went through uh, B phase, which is tactics. That's where we kind of slept in the field an awful lot, and we did uh, uh, tactical things that you'd be expected to do when you're supporting uh, troops in the field in a combat situation. I can cite one of those things. It's kind of interesting. Let's say uh, a uh, battalion headquarters had a company way down the road that he needed to get wire communications to them. They'd call us with permission. We'd load up uh, on the wing shackles. That's the place where you hang things on the wings. A little donut-looking thing about uh, 16 inches in diameter. And it was full of wire, uh, WD-1 combo wire. And we'd tie one into that onto a brick. I mean, a literally a brick. And the guy in the back seat would hold that brick until I flew over the uh, battalion headquarters. We'd throw that brick out and then fly, and that uh, wire would, would spin out of that uh, tube until we got to the company headquarters. And uh, we could grab we could grab it there and snip it. I forget how we cut it, or let just let it all play out. I, I can't remember. But that's how we laid wire from one headquarters to another. Uh, we did resu- uh, resupply. We're dropping things off those shackles. So... Uh, I even used to, when I was in a unit, uh, would fly those uh, L-19s with uh, tanks on each wing full of tear gas. And in a unit, uh, a unit training or unit test, I'd go out and tear gas the guys, see how well they did put the mask <laughs> on and all that stuff. They, they told me one time I put a bunch of them in the hospital. I flew so low. <laughs> so uh, from, from uh, the tactics phase, we went to phase C, which was instrument flight training. That's where we put on the hood where we can't see anything but the uh, uh, cockpit, the dashboard instrument panel. And uh, we learned how to fly and land uh, with all the ground instruments and that type of thing. From there, I went to my first duty station, which was Fort Stewart, Georgia. That's over in Hinesville, just uh, about 30 miles south of Savannah. And there was 125 officers at that place at that time. It was a very, very small post. Now it's got a full division there. And uh, that's when I dropped that tear gas on those guys and put some of them in the hospital. But I just flew uh, post support. Uh, got pretty heavy in the summer when a lot of units were down there training. And uh, that's where I met my future wife, Patricia McDaniel, from Brunswick, Georgia. And... Uh, Towards the end of that, uh, oh, sometime in the middle there, around 61, I went temporary duty to another almost unknown place, Camp Walters, now Fort Walters, Texas. 
at Mineral Wells, Texas. And that was for my initial helicopter training. I flew the H, uh, H-23. i got to think a minute on that. Yeah, H-23 uh, for about, I don't know, 80, 60 to 80 hours and became a helicopter pilot at that point. Went back to Fort Stewart to the, my, my old unit, which is the uh, uh, flight training division for the post. And there I was transitioned into the H-13, which is the uh, Bell, uh, it's now called the Bell 47 civilian model, H-13 Sioux. Most all Army aircraft have an Indian name, and that's the Sioux. Finished my tour there, and uh, all of a sudden we were planning a wedding that summer, and... uh, I got a call from DA said we're sending you to Korea. Uh oh, we got problems here. So we decided to get that Korean tour out of the way and marry after I came back, which that's what happened. It uh, in Korea, I was back on ground duty. Uh, was a platoon leader in the tank battalion, third medium tank battalion, 40th armor, and uh, a company XO, and then I uh, got command of headquarters company. And that was uh, actually the most notable thing there was that was the 10th year anniversary of the ceasefire, uh, not not the end of the war. That war has never ended, as most people know. It was strictly a ceasefire. And uh, our adversaries, you know, seemed to want to uh, do things on anniversaries. So we were just we went to the field locked and loaded, thinking something was going to break out, and nothing did. My alert position during that ter- period of time, I could reach the town of Kaesong with my tank gun if I put it on, put it up on a good enough hill to get the elevation. So I was right up there uh, on the front line, uh, right off of Freedom Bridge. That's over the Imjin River, and uh, that tour was just a, a normal situation. Uh, good training, good kids to work with, what have you. Uh, came home October of uh, 62, spent a few uh, days with my family in Oklahoma, then started driving south to Fort Stewart. Okay, Glenn, uh, we're, going to our, Glenn we're going to our first break. But when okay. we get back, when we get back, October 62, that sounds like the Cuban Missile Crisis. I want you to tell us about that, what oh, your experience yes, is during that. So we'll be right back in a couple of minutes, folks. Stay with us. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. 
If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Carr. Uh, in 1962, October, uh, he had just returned from deployment to South Korea, and he walked into a hornet's nest. Tell us about that, Colonel. Well, I was uh, driving south from my family's home uh, back to uh, Brunswick, Georgia, to get married. And about 9.30 that night, I was listening to the radio, obviously, and President Kennedy came on and gave his famous speech uh, about the Cuban problem. That was uh, 22nd of October, 62. And that was a rather earth-shaking speech to those of you who are old enough to remember that. I was going to spend the night in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, but I was so petrified, I squeezed that steering wheel so hard, my hands turned blue, and I drove straight on to Georgia. Never stopped except for uh, the necessary things. And uh, I went up to Fort Stewart, mainly to get paid. Uh, they wouldn't let me in the gate. In fact, I drove in the back gate, uh, back uh, entrance to the airfield, which I was the commander of when I left. <laughs> And it was barricaded. It had the office tank barricade on there I've ever seen. Pine trees and dirt pushed up. So I turned around, went in the front gate. I was met by a young soldier with a rifle. I said, sir, I can't let you on post. I said quickly, do you, uh, you have a telephone I can use? So I called this old friend of mine, Lieutenant Colonel uh, uh, Capicelli. Called him Colonel Cappy. He was a geographical bachelor, so uh, he was our, we, the bachelors are called him our mascot. And uh, we always had a beer together every evening at the old club and told him my situation and uh, what have you. And by that time, I had learned that all of my men, including my best man, were sequestered at various places like uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, Fort Sill, uh, one at Fort Hood. Uh, My original best man his wife called me up and said, uh, he gave me, came in, kissed me, gave me a power attorney and said, uh, call Glenn, I'm deployed. And he left. Well, having told all this to our friend there, Colonel Capicelli, he began to start looking. And he found old Jimmy Hughes, my original best man, right out on the other side of the airfield in a Mohawk unit that had been deployed. Uh, I called around, and finally I got uh, a major that I had known pretty well there uh, to be in the wedding party. And went back out to the airfield. I'd been out there once. And I went back out to those two lieutenants that came in after I did. That's when I just met them that, uh, that couple of days there. And I said, hey, lieutenants, so you all got dress blue uniforms? Yes, we do. I said, you want to be in a wedding Sunday? <laughs> They said, well, yeah, we'll help you out, because they, they, by that time, had known my, my predicament. So to this day, Pat and I can't uh, can't tell you the names of those guys. We've got pictures of them, but they came down and helped us out. <laughs> and uh, we got, uh, got the ceremony going okay, but I'll tell you. Uh, Highway 17, OUS 17, was the major route before interstates, and it was bumper to bumper 
the state platform trucks headed south with military equipment on board. The entire 1st Armored Division was stacked up there at Fort Hood loading ammunition. And, and the, the more I saw, the more more scared I got. But uh, I talked to Colonel Caffey, and he said, no problem. You're, you've got 45 days leave. You're not accountable until the end of that leave. Go on and have, uh, have fun. So uh, wow. that's pretty much what we did. Now, i got to tell you a little bit about the wedding uh, situation. Right uh, before the wedding, we were all up in uh, my room getting dressed, and all those crazy guys had me stripped down to my underwear. And Colonel Capicelli says, uh, big, loud voice, attention to orders. And he read the DA order, promoted me to captain. <laughs> I didn't know I was anywhere near being uh, in that time frame, but it happened. And he brought every possible thing I, uh, I needed to put captain's bars on. My wife didn't know it until after the ceremony that, I, that she'd marry a captain, captain and sister first lieutenant. <laughs> so uh, that was fun. Uh, we, uh, I think a lot on, of uh, lot, Glenn, I, Glenn. I think a lot of people, uh, if they do remember the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, a lot of the kids don't know anything about it. But we almost entered a nuclear war, and exactly I think you were very right. aware. Uh, very, very close to it, just within minutes. Um, it had been a horrible situation. But let me ask you this. When did you transition to the Chinook? Okay. I uh, After uh, the advanced course back at Fort, uh, Fort Knox, Armored Officer Advance, I had to have a, comp- a compassionate assignment. My dad passed away suddenly, and, of course, he had a construction company that needed to be uh, disposed of. I was ready to resign. I went up to the commandant and said, uh, I'm going to tender my resignation. He said, oh, no, 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 wait, let, let's talk about this. So he got me a uh, assignment to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is very close to oh. home, about 100 miles. And that was where I got a transition into the Caribou fixed-wing aircraft. But uh, that deployed, because I was non-deployable, that, we, we sent them to Nam on a Christmas. In fact, they took off Christmas morning. And... Uh, uh, sometime after that, I tried to get DA to send me. Uh, I got tired of guys coming back and say, uh, oh, "I just finished my second tour. Now, I'm, how many tours you got?" And I sheepishly said, "Well, I haven't been yet." And that was getting very embarrassing. <laughs> so I told DA I want. I was my situation squared away. I wanted to go, Valley Hermit Hall, and I said I want to go with the uh, with the two hundred fifth. That unit doesn't exist. I said, it sure does. I'm watching the company commander walk across the ramp. Well, old dumb me, I didn't know it at the time. That was classified. But I finally kind of wised up and said, well, we better talk about something else. So later on, I did get orders to the 205th. And uh, before that, I had gotten smart. I didn't want to go over there as a uh, uh, slip pilot, Huey. So I got a transition, went down to Fort Rucker for about uh, six weeks, four weeks, something like that, to Shook School, and that was one of the finest schools I've ever been to. Me being a maintenance guy, I really enjoyed the maintenance aspects of that airplane, and it's got a lot of maintenance in it. So I was set up then to go with the 205th, and we deployed the 25th of May out of uh, Tinkerfield, Flew, I think, flew to California and had our final combat uh, formation there. Uh, landed in uh, Cameron Bay, 
and we were set up to uh, went all over the country. We, about three of us went up to uh, the 196 in Quignon. Well, I had just pushed that company out Fort Sill, uh, at Fort Sill. Uh, they deployed just before the 205th. Says all my friends there, just go home week. That's, that was real good, real comforting. I did my one-week in-country training and then went down to uh, our final station at Fuloy, which is about, I guess, 10, 15 miles north of Saigon. And I was sitting there in the hangar building my platoon leader, a desk and a chair out of rocket boxes. And they had, they had at that point, seven or eight majors in that company. I was the senior captain. There's a story there. I was a major, but nobody knew it. Including me. Uh, so all of a sudden, this guy comes in the hangar and says, uh, fellow named Glenn Carr here. I'm the man. Yes, I am. He came on and says, uh, he introduced himself. And I says, I want you. I says, well, what for? He says, you're coming to my company right across the ditch here, the, the 213. I said, no, 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 no. I just bought this unit to help put them together, blah, blah, blah. I want to stay here. He says, he looked at me and kind of most of his index finger, you come with me. So I said, yes, sir, three bags full, and walked across that ditch and immediately became a platoon leader. Then later on became the company executive officer. Then towards the end of the career, I became the company commander. And those six or eight majors are still back across the ditch trying to figure out who is going to be the mess officer. <laughs> uh, so that was, probably, that was probably the best thing that ever happened in my career. <laughs> uh, but that's uh, that's where my real Chinook experience started. Okay, what? Uh, let me ask you this: What was the most exciting of the Manning mission, flying the Chinook? Well, there were several of them, but I suspect that the the most sticks in my mind. Uh, let me set the stage here. Back uh, years before, the Viet Cong and the Arbin. Uh, Republic of Vietnam Army kind of had a gentleman's agreement come Tet, uh, Tet the Lunar New Year which is about a four or five day period they will stand down and we, will, we won't shoot at you and you don't shoot at us so uh, that Tet which was January of uh, January 30th of 68 I thought well being an executive officer I could pick my own time to fly I said, I'm going to take the number one airplane in the morning. So there won't be any shooting going on. That's one uh, plus. Won't be hauling any artillery, most likely. And we just bacon and beans, uh, sorties, what we call, you know, hauling food. Maybe bring guys back to base camp for a shower or what have you. Be a good day. Well, signing myself number one airplane, we also put... Uh, the number one was the guy that would get all the tackies. That's a tactical emergency. That means an infantry unit is in heavy contact, about to be overrun, or most uh, definitely needs ammo. If they go, period, they go. That's it. No ifs and buts about it. Well, 2.30 that morning, I got rolled out of the sack and uh, beat, beat put to the operations office, got my briefing, and my uh, enlisted crews already out checking the airplane over, and me and the, uh, Peter Pilot, uh, I was aircraft commander, 
uh, we went on the airplane, and I had a long sheet because the number one aircraft is always the one that flies the most because the maintenance officer wants it uh, flown into inspection. So uh, we knew we had a full day ahead of us, but I thought it was going to be real enjoyable. Well, until that tack E came on. Uh, by that time, I'd gotten a weather briefing, and it was uh, low ceilings. They topped out about 800 feet. Uh, so I got on the runway. Luckily, the load to pick up was right on the far end of the runway. I didn't have to go back 10 miles to the rear uh, where the division rear was, where we normally picked up our loads. And uh, I got the airfield, uh, into the airfield there, and the load was ready. I picked it up. It was just uh, uh, several bags of ammunition, probably probably 3,000 pounds of ammunition. And uh, I lifted up, and the crew chief said, Sir, do you know the aft rotor is in the clouds? It's about five feet higher than the front rotor. And I said, Well, I suspect so. I see mine turning the clouds. So I called. I'll, I'll give you and you're still on the ground, here. right? You're still yeah, on well, the ground, and you're in cloud cover. Yeah. Yeah, I just Holy that's, that's known as fog. That's known as fog, but it also was eight hundred <laughs> feet thick. Uh, I uh, let's see where was. Oh, I uh, had already got pretty good weather briefing, as best was known, and I called uh, Saigon uh, radar, and I'll, I'll give you what that sounded like and uh, explain a little of it. I said, "Paris Control, this is Black Cat Five on the end of Papalima runway. I need pigeons uh, to coordinates one, two, three, four, whatever. And I want angels three. Advise stormy weather and stay with me for the return flight. Over. What that meant was I wanted him to vector me to map coordinates so and so. that's the pigeons. And I want angels it's, I want altitude three thousand. Stormy weather was advised me of the Cambodian border, which was, you don't fly across it. And then, of course, wait for my return flight. So we take off. It was very, very smooth clouds. And, uh, of course, that, uh, I was flying instruments through the clouds and got on top. And it's still pitch dark. It was about, uh, about 3.30, I'm guessing. Might have been 4. Uh, so I fly, and he'd give me a bingo over the coordinate. By that time, I was talking to the ground, and I couldn't see anything below. I flashed my landing light on, because I knew what that's going to be, just, just going to come right back at me like throwing a light into a mirror. And I asked a guy on the ground who was uh, a good friend of ours. We served with him so much there, we, we knew each other. All right, and Glenn, said, we're going to have uh, to stop right there. Glenn, uh, go okay. to our next break. Got you in the air, in the fog. We'll come right back to that, folks. Uh, stand by. Hello. My name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmb. HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. 
As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Lieutenant Colonel uh, Glenn Carr, Chinook Pilot, Vietnam. All right, Glenn, you're... you're uh, Trying to drop supplies in during the Tet Offensive. You can't see the ground. <laughs> Continue on. Okay. Uh, we're out there talking to uh, the uh, infantry unit, and uh, uh, he said, well, I hear you when we flew over, but I can't see anything. So I set up what's called a uh, holding pattern. It's a standard aviation maneuver. Uh, we have a gauge in the airplane that uh, you can set up a standard turn. I won't go into the technicality of that, but I made a 180-degree turn, standard turn, went uh, two minutes outbound, and then a standard turn, two minutes inbound. They said, ah, we hear you. So you sounds like you're right on top of us. So I pretty well pinpointed where they were, but I didn't know uh, exactly how I was going to come out when it got onto that field. Now, that luckily... That part of Vietnam was flat as a pool table. Uh, so I asked him, I said, you got a handheld flare down there? Yes, do. I said, get, get you a trooper out there on the middle of that field where you want me to land and have him hold that flare straight up, and I'll tell you when to fire. Yes, sir. So I made one more turn, and I, I timed it uh, after my uh, end of my inbound leg, about 45 seconds to the three-minute leg, I'm sorry, 45 seconds to forget the timing, about three-quarters of the way in, I said, uh, fire. Well, I'm telling you, that was the prettiest sight I've ever seen in my life. That flare came right straight up the center post of my windshield. Now, it wasn't that close, but I was lined up on it dead center. So I bottomed that thrust lever, and uh, we came in like a scalded dog. And I had to tell the guy, kick that flare to the side. I'm going to land right on top of it. <laughs> and we put his ammunition down. And, uh, uh, of course, I always ask, you got any back calls, any wounded, anything like that? Nope, nope, you're good to go. Get out of here. Well, that happened to be uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cavazos, Richard E. Cavazos, was battalion commander. And they were in deep kimchi and running low on ammo. Uh, he, I think that's the time he got one of his two distinguished flying I'm sorry, distinguished service cross wow. for the action of that day. That's the next one to the Medal of Honor. 
But he was so excited uh, that he came down a couple of weeks later and gave us a real nice trophy for our officers' club. And he later became a four-star general. Wow. Wow. So uh, wow. That, that, was, just... that was, as you could imagine, uh, all the pucker strings were tight on that mission because <laughs> you, you just don't know what's ahead of you. <laughs> That's true. Did you tell folks about uh, a moment of stark terror in the cockpit? Okay, uh, that must be referred to the time I came out of locking in, which is uh, uh, on one of the corridors, the invasion corridors, uh, up northeast of where I was based. Uh, about 9.30 at night, we'd been working quite hard up there. I, I don't recall if it was uh, it's sometime in the era of TEP-68, which could have been uh, mid to late February. And we were just too long, nice, cool, starlit night, going going home. And all of a sudden, uh, my Peter pilot said, uh, Sir, it's snowing in here. And I said, It can't be snowing. It, it's, I checked the gauge, and it, it said, uh, about, I don't know, 20 degrees, something like that, 17 degrees. And wait, this, this is centigrade. I checked the gauge again. Yeah, that's centigrade. I said, it, it can't be snowing. It's too hot out there. Well, as you take the aircraft, man, he took the aircraft, and I kind of reached up, took my glove off, reached up there and got some stuff down. I said, my God, this is aluminum shavings. Uh-oh. We got something. We got something fixing to throw a scrap iron fit up there. And uh, we were just passing Quan Loy, about five miles to our left, big airfield there. So I said, take an easy turn. Don't make any unusual movements. And he eased that thing around to land in Quan Loy, and we did that successfully. But I was on the radio talking to various people. And we opened the tunnel cover. Now, you got to have to give you a little enough maintenance here. you got those two rotor heads. They are phased, kind of like two gears running together. They, they never touch, but they, they're phased. If they get out of phase... Uh, you're in, in real kimchi, fatal kimchi. There's a, a shaft, which is about a four-inch diameter shaft, goes from the aft transmission to the forward transmission. We found that a crew chief or mechanic had left a 9-16 box-in wrench in that trunk. <laughs> and it was, a, it was against that shaft, just like a lathe, just shaving it off. Well, there's a speck on that shaft that, that for the first 15 inches, I think, or 17 inches, you can only have a nick, dent, or scratch five thousandths of an inch thick. <laughs> the edge, the edge of that wrench had cut such a uh, cut and deformed, you could look inside the shaft and see a, a, a ring, kind of a bump ring, where that was just about to cut through that shaft. The Boeing tech rep told us that if you had made a a normal hitch increase, in other words, pull the up stick up, you probably would put enough torque on that to twist it, twist it loose. If it uh, if it comes off in the air, it's uh, it, it'll throw a scrap iron fit. You just sitting there front front row seat, and you it's it's all over. Now, I wouldn't on be ground, talking to you today, would I? No, that's right. You would. 
if it goes, uh, if it flies apart on the ground, there, I think there have been a case or two where they were survivors. There, there were survivors, but uh, it just throws a scrap iron fit. That's the best I can say. Well, that uh, we were, we were, we were tight as a two before all the way down. You know, hoping that thing would hold together. And that's probably the scariest I've ever been. I've lost an engine of caribou. wasn't half that uh, uh, traumatic situation. I guess, I guess. Were you ever shot up in your Chinook? Well, you know, I pride myself uh, of being uh, shot up many times, but I never got shot down. Think about that a minute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, I, I, I took... Uh, we were hauling artillery, moving an artillery battery, somewhere outside of uh, Lycay. Um, you don't know where that is. I can't remember either. But anyhow, we had pulled up the howitzer, and then as you do that, you pull up about a 1,000-pound bag of ammunition right below the howitzer, so you got two loads uh, on the hook. You fly over the outfit, and one of the artillerymen down there throws the, throws the uh, loop on your hook, and your crew chief tells you up up two feet, right two feet, forward one foot. And he kind of flies the airplane by talking to you. And he, your, your load is tight. And then you come on up and you're ready to fly. We took off. And we hadn't gotten to uh, what we refer to as the angel altitude. Uh, 3,000 feet, you were pretty much out of small arms range. Now, the big stuff, the 51 cal, that type of stuff would reach you. But the... Uh, the, the grunt with an M1 or AK-47 is not going to get you. We probably about halfway at altitude, and all of a sudden, blap, blap, blap. And you know when you, you're getting hit. When it goes through that skin of that airplane, it's the most unusual uh, sound you ever heard. Well, some unknown reason, I turned immediately to the left. Never had to figure out what, what made me do that, what my thought process was. But that put my left door gunner looking almost straight down to the ground and he was a, a native american guy sharp attack we called him chief and the chief saw those uh well i'll call them in <laughs> clean it up on the ground <laughs> and they were they were still uh looked like they, he said they're still shooting at us but i i had uh, changed direction on them you know and that threw him a curveball he opened up on them and, I mean, he, he had that gun barrel hot time I leveled that airplane out. And we gotten out of their, out of their range, and I looked back. My right door gunner was laying on the floor, bleeding like a stuck hog. Uh, chief stripped him off. Uh, he had a bullet right, uh, I, I, I know it, the poor kid never walked in, but shot right through his spine, just about an inch or two above the belt. So he was dressing him up, got him fixed up. I was talking to the crew chief. Uh, about uh, any uh, any great leaks or anything. So see, a Chinook is just full of hydraulic oil, and uh, the old A model just leaked like a sieve. So that's what crew chief was doing all the time, monitoring leaks. I said, anything anything bad? Or both uh, both engines still turning? Got a report from him, okay. And then I looked back again. Old chief had stripped off, dropped his britches, and he'd taken around right beside. So he passed mm. himself up. He was still ambulatory. But the other kid was—he uh, was—he was just about out of it. Um, we beat foot back into Lycay with the nearest uh, 
medical facilities. Uh, I told the tower I wanted medics on the ground ASAP, and I'm going to drop the howitzer right off one side, and I'll pull up close as I can to the medic truck. And I got uh, two two severely wounded, and we got them off. I got the artillery crew, which they calmed down. Of course, by that time, there were seven men in there. Uh, they were a little excited about what was going on. None of them took any rounds. Don't know how they lucked out. Uh, but got the one to take care of and uh, picked the house back up and the crew, and we went on to where we were supposed to go. And uh, didn't lose anything except that one kid got severely wounded. I never, We never did hear he was back, he back to Japan. Don't know after that what happened. The chief stayed with us. Uh, he was close to leaving. His uh, full year was just about up. But uh, that's one of several uh, that I suspect is foremost in my memory now. All that stuff's fading. I'll tell you, it, it's, I'm having to think about it a minute to when, where, what, who to come up with. I understand. Stories. And, and uh, Colonel, let me tell you something. Uh, I think you're being a little bit humble about that. You received the Distinguished Flying Cross for that action, did you not? Uh, that's correct. Uh, sure. I tried to refuse it. I tried to refuse Why? it. And the company, the company, well, I didn't I did think it merited that. The company huh. commander said, you're too late. General Abrams is on the way up here to, to give it to you. That four-star <laughs> was commanding Vietnam that night, so I had to shut up and go take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to our, uh, Glenn, we're going to our last break. Uh, folks, we'll be right back with uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Carr, uh, Chinook pilot in Vietnam. Stand by. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, we just uh, heard from uh, Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Carr about one of his harrowing experiences uh, flying the Chinook. He, would, he did receive the Distinguished Flying Cross for that mission. Uh, one thing about the Chinook, Colonel, um, <laughs> it was a lot bigger than the Huey Slicks 
and the Cobra gunships. Uh, and being that big, you also made uh, a nice target. Um, I think approximately 750 Chinooks served in Vietnam. We lost 200 of them. So uh, you were always in danger. And did you? Did you and your troops? Did you ever have any downtime? I mean, did you ever get out of combat to do something else? Relax, whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did. I'll add something to that, uh, what you just said. If memory serves me right, the uh, the enemy offered uh, a, a prize for a Chinook. Anybody shot a Chinook down, they got uh, many bags of rice or something. I'm not sure what it was, but they we had a bounty really? on our head. Yeah. Wow. And the, the, the rotor diameter, I think, was about 60 feet on that thing. Uh no, no. Uh, each rotor blade was sixty feet. I don't remember. That's. Uh, <laughs> I, I do remember the hydraulic pressure up there was uh, four thousand pounds for starting the engines, and the rest of it was just three thousand pounds. So uh, yeah. you hit a line, you, you hit a hydraulic line, and you got a shower going. Wow. Uh, yes. To answer your question, uh, yeah, we were lucky in the two thirteen. Uh, we got tapped. Sometime, I think, around January, might have been late December, uh, January 68, to host the Hello Dolly show, which was uh, Martha Ray and her troop uh, put on Hello Dolly for the USO. So we got with their, her construction, or not construction, uh, stage manager and found out what she needed. Uh, make a long story short, I had two guys, two specialists, fourth class, spec four and spec five, I call them my PhDs in procurement. <laughs> you translate that into the best damn thieves in the United States Army. <laughs> they could they could get anything. I, I swear, if I wanted Air Force One to be in Pulloy at two o'clock tomorrow, they they could have had it there. But anyhow, uh, we got together and put uh, put down four second platform trucks, uh, and the stage manager said, "All oh, that that bed is so rough." Because uh, you can imagine a truck bed in Vietnam, the combat situation, it was rough. It was a stack of corn cobs. So we went out and found uh, three-quarter-inch plywood. Uh, three-quarter-inch plywood in Vietnam was a commodity. You could get anything with plywood. Hmm. And it took anything to get in plywood. So they uh, said, yeah, we got the plywood you need, but uh, we ain't going to give it to you, my, my two PhDs. So I had to go down as a major and sign for that stuff. Uh, so we got it. Reply, we floored those trucks all gang together. We got two 109 shop vans, just a great big old box on the back of the truck. It's got a machine shop in it for the maintenance people. Took all the stuff out of there. Put, uh, we got a sink, two sinks and a couple of mirrors. Fixed those up. Got a male-female dressing room. And uh, we got an old Air Force. Uh, we had showers all over the place out of Air Force uh, wing tanks. They were a dime a dozen. So we got two of those, stacked them up. We put put a rack over the uh, truck, put those uh, tanks on there with water in them. One of them was cold water. One of them had the mess hall immersion heater uh, in it. And we fired that thing up, and they had hot and cold running water. Huh. And... Uh, the uh, PA and E, that's Pacific Architect, uh, uh, what's that called? Pacific Architects and Engineers. They're the guys that built the mess halls, office building, that type of thing on the on the uh, permanent post areas. 
we asked them to uh, uh, fix up some porta potties. They did. They just begged. What else can we? What else can we do? They didn't want to be credited with just only putting down putting down the porta potty. <laughs> so I said, uh, "Can you uh, can you put any lights on?" Oh yeah, we, they lighted up that st- that stage with like a New York Broadway production. Huh. And Martha Ray just went out of her mind over those facilities. She says, never in my career have I seen a stage put together in three days like this. And they went and put on a show. We had about five, just a wild guess. We had 500 uh, capacity bleachers set up, and they were sitting on the ground. So I, we had yeah. 500 plus, maybe 800 saw that show. It was a great show. Well, you know, most folks know Martha Ray as the actress. I mean, she was with Bob Hope in some movies and things like that. But Martha Ray was a, a army officer. She was she yes, was a director nurse. She was a, a, a uh, uh, what's it called? Surgical nurse. She was a surgical nurse. And we went, they got in trouble. The Air Force, she was playing down in some air base south Saigon. And she, that was her last show, and they were going back to Saigon to go home in the three or four days. And all of a sudden, uh, the Air Force couldn't couldn't get them. And she said, "Call the Black Cats." And they said, "Who's the Black Cats?" Well, she got them into the right telephone situation. They called up uh, my operations guy and said what they needed to be picked up down at uh, out of what air base. And they gave me the mission. I said, "You mean?" After all, all, that was another day when I think I had number one airplane and it worked my butt off already. He said, you mean I've got an add-on today? He said, sir, I think you're going to like this one. So I said, all right, shoot it to me. They gave it to me. He said, go to so-and-so air, air base and pick up Martha Ray and her troop and bring them to Saigon. I said, Roger, I got it. We, tur- we turned and headed south. Uh, we land down there and the tower told us to give you a certain place to, to taxi to. And we were just about, oh, 100 yards from the officer's club. The tower told us, all of you shut down and you're to go into the club. Well, we you could smell us coming down short final. We'd been working all day long and we stunk like <laughs> uh, alley cat. And, and we said, Lord, we can't go in that officer's club looking, smelling like this. But they, we did. We walked in the front door and that was right into the where the main bar was, and there sat all the Air Force guys, and Martha hops up and says, Ah, great, the Army is here. Oh, Lord, here goes the fight. <laughs> but nothing happened. They, they, uh, Several of those officers just really wanted to know about the Chinook. They thought they were that, that was quite an airplane, so we, we talked the air, airplane for a while there. And finally, uh, uh, said it's time to go. We got the troop all loaded uh, and what have you. We had our... Uh, Coke and uh, went on out to, air, air, uh, to the airplane, and I said, uh, "I said, crew, we're going to show the Air Force something." Everybody loaded, everybody strapped down. Yes, sir, we're ready to go. And I pulled that thrust lever up about my armpit, and then started pedal turn, and we corkscrewed that airplane straight up into the air at about three thousand feet, and headed it to Saigon. And I, I, you, we could almost hear the Air Force jaws hit the, hit the pavement when they saw that. <laughs> if, a safety officer, if a safety officer had seen that, I'd probably be in jail today. 
Well, uh, Vietnam caused a lot of uh, rules to be broken. Did, uh, yeah, it I remember one story. I don't know if you heard it, Glenn, about Martha Ray. She was at some base, just got hit, or they just flew in yeah. some casualties, and they were overwhelmed. And she just she walked right into the operate room, and said, "What do I need to do?" And they said, "You can't be that in was, here." Yeah, that was exactly that, that that base. She went out, went over to give her a hug. She just said, "Oh, Glenn, you won't you won't believe what we did last night." She says. Two o'clock in the morning, we got rocket attack, and I was in in the operating room in my nighty helping them out. <laughs> that was that very night we flew to pick them up. But yeah, yeah she, that's correct. She uh, somebody when she took got to the operating room said, "Ma'am, you can't be in here," and she pulled right on. Uh, yeah, what was she? Was she a, a major she or a lieutenant colonel? colonel by lieutenant she, colonel, light colonel. Yeah, light colonel, and uh, she. She'd have that caduceus on her collar, and she'd pull that up, show it to them, says, there's my caduceus, here's my rank. And they put her to work. That, that happened <laughs> on several occasions. What a great lady. I think that she is buried with some yes. Army Rangers. Is that correct? She's buried, in the, she's buried in the Special Forces Cemetery at Fort Bragg. And the only, only one, I think, uh, that was allowed that, uh, that to happen. Well, quite a lady, quite a lady, quite a lady, and you were you were quite a pilot in Vietnam, Glenn. I went over your bio, and we probably need about four hours to tell everybody everything you did in your military career. My God, I mean, all the stations and everything else. Uh, you retired as a lieutenant colonel, uh, and you had a lot of duty stations. Just. <sighs> You had a second tour of Vietnam, if you want to mention anything about that. But I also want your final thoughts. We have about two minutes left, so One rave minute. on, sir. Okay, the second tour, I commanded an air cav troop at Play Coup. Uh, that was in 71, 72, no, 70, 71. And as you know, the war was winding down then. We were re- uh, uh, restricted from putting in American uh, blues, our infantry platoon. Uh, so we were just almost out of combat. All we were doing was surveilling the border uh, in the Pleiku area from the Chupong Mountains up to the core boundary north. And it's it kind of uneventful. Uh, so uh, luckily, uh, the, the combat had pretty well gone gone down the road. Uh, not much I could say there. Some of it was just boredom. Uh, flying okay. circles around the, the loaches and the cobras down on the ground doing their work looking for bad guys. We did have a few firefights. Uh, I, uh, I guess my crowning uh, achievement was when I got to Europe, uh, I was promoted literally on the way over from major to lieutenant colonel. I lost command of a helicopter company and got put in as deputy commander of a signal group. Oh, my Lord, that's the end of my career. I'm a tanker. Well, that turned out pretty interesting, uh, very interesting fact. And I later got to command of Signal Battalion just before uh, the next uh, uh, selection uh, order came out. And I ended One up minute, being, Pete. Uh, commander of the 3rd Squadron, 8th United States Cavalry in uh, Mannheim. as a unit of about 880 folks. Had an air troop of uh, just like I commanded in the, in the Vietnam Second Tour, twenty-seven airplanes, 
And that was, I guess, the crowning achievement uh, of my career, commanding that uh, cavalry squadron. That's equivalent to an inferior tank battalion. And uh, after that, I went back to Fort Knox and tried to tell, uh, train the uh, reserve and national guard in a four-state area around Fort Knox. Okay, Pete, we uh, got to cut that off. You know, give them training and uh, make everything possible I could make possible from the Armor Center at Knox for their training. And then from there, I went to Forces Command as an IG, as Inspector General. That's where nobody talks to you because you're always investigating something or somebody. <laughs> okay. That, uh, 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 Glenn, we are out of time. I wish I had about two more hours to talk to you. Really touched, touched on your career. So thank you, well, sir, for being my guest today. Great story. Thank you for your service, sir. Well, thank you, Peter. I enjoyed uh, being with you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.